following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information about Trinity Grace Church, go to www.trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Michael and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. And as many of you know, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark over the past three months, and it's the second Gospel account that you find in your New Testament, but it's believed to be the earliest written account we have of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as you read Mark, one of the ways that you know you're reading Mark correctly is if you experience a sense of emergency or crisis in his accounts. You may have noticed this aspect of Mark's accounts as we've worked our way through this gospel, but crisis is very normal on the pages of Mark. We've seen an overwhelming storm at sea where his disciples feel like they're about to die. We've seen an out-of-control demoniac in the garrisons. We have seen a daughter who dies before Jesus is able to make his way to be with her. And all of these stories have a certain emergency presented, a crisis that needs to be solved. Well, this morning, we're going to be reading the last recorded healing in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's about to enter that city for the last time. In fact, the last five chapters of Mark, chapters 11 through 16, occur during the final week of Jesus's life. It's a condensed version of what happens that last week. And as you see Jesus perform miracles through the gospels, it's important to recognize that these healings aren't just parlor tricks. They're not just meaningless demonstrations of power simply to amaze people. The miracles that Jesus performs are meant to validate his teaching. They're meant to give people a physical taste of the healing and restoration that he is one day gonna bring to everyone who trusts in him. These miracles are pictures that point us to who God is and what he's able to do in our lives. They're object lessons in a sense. They're healings that we can actually see tangibly with our eyes. In the gospels, you get a sense that Jesus healed blind people a lot, especially as you consider that all of Christ's miracles and mighty acts aren't even recorded for us. It's just a few that we likely have. So as we read this account of Christ's final miracle before he walks into Jerusalem for the last time, it's good to ask what God is showing us about ourselves and what he's showing us about himself through what Jesus does here. So I want you to keep that question in mind as we read from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46, the passage is printed for you in your bulletin. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. 
Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you grew up with the magic eye books, the magic eye books. You may have seen these books at some point in your life. These are books with pages full of pictures that initially look like a jumble of color. Uh, The pictures really look like big splotches of paint that are just kind of splattered on the page. But the deal is that each of these pictures has a hidden image in them that you can see in 3D as your eyes adjust. A picture jumps out of the splotchy paint and normally it happens as you begin to move the picture from right in front of your face and you slowly move it away and all of a sudden the 3D image pops out at you for the first time. These are fun books. They can be really frustrating though when you can't get your eyes to adjust so that you can see the hidden 3D image. And the interesting thing about these books is that nothing actually changes with the picture. It stays exactly the same. What changes is the way you see the picture. Something triggers in your sight at some point that brings the 3D image out. And this is actually a good way to think about and understand spiritual sight. Because as you read the scriptures, you see blindness is often a metaphor of our sinful condition, both in the Old and the New Testaments. God is out there. He is at work. Our sin is a reality that brings misery uh, to our lives. Our neighbors have a deep unmet need for God's love. None of these truths change. They stay the same. They're the pages of the magic book in a sense. But what does change is our ability to see these truths. God comes and he gives us the ability to see what was always there He comes and he gives us spiritual sight. You see this idea at play in Matthew 15, when Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides. Jesus is obviously in that passage talking to people who can physically see, but he's touching on their spiritual blindness. The fact that they can't see God for who he really is. They can't see their own sin and hypocrisy. They can't see the real needs of the people that they're supposed to be teaching. On top of that, what's chilling, or should be at least for you and I sitting in church, is that Jesus is speaking in that passage to people who believe the Bible, who trust in God. Jesus addresses them and he calls them blind. If we're honest, we know something personally about what Jesus calls blindness. Even if we've been following Jesus for years, oftentimes our eyesight isn't what we wish it was. We're still often blind to our own sin. We're blind to our hypocrisy. We're blind to our judgmental spirits. We're blind to the way that sin has enslaved us and kept us in bondage. We're still often blind to God's glory. Blind to the fact that he is in complete control of everything that happens in our lives and in this world. We're blind to his patience towards us. We're oftentimes blind to his love and his grace that he wants us to receive. We're blind to his commands and his call on our lives. 
We're still often blind as we look at our neighbors, blind to the loneliness that those who live right next door to us often experience. We're blind to the struggles of our coworkers. We're blind to the difficult days that our spouse often experiences. We're blind to the fact that we run into spiritually dead people all of the time through the course of a normal day. And this blindness, it's got major consequences in our lives. Being blind to our sin leads to continued bondage and enslavement because if we can't see our deep need, we'll never take hold of the remedy that Jesus offers. Being blind to God's glory leads to a lack of wonder and trust because we don't know him for who he really is. Being blind to our neighbor's needs leads to a lack of compassion and care for those all around us who are fighting a great battle. And what we see from our passage this morning is that Jesus wants to come and open our eyes. Maybe for some here, Jesus wants to open your eyes for the first time ever to see your sin and to see his glory and his grace. But for many of us, we've received that spiritual sight that comes at conversion when we place our faith in Jesus, but our eyesight is still weak. We have lots of blind spots in our lives and Jesus wants to give us better sight. The man we meet in our passage, he's not metaphorically blind. He's physically blind, Bartimaeus is. But this story is meant to teach us something of how Jesus engages you and I spiritually. This story is meant to show us that Jesus wants to open our eyes to what's really there, to what has always been right in front of us. We've just been unable to see it, unable to focus our eyes properly. We pick up in this story as Jesus, his disciples in a large crowd of followers, they're leaving Jericho and they're leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is about to enter the last week of his life, where he's gonna be arrested, abused, and executed. And at this time of year, it's a week before Passover, the Passover festival in Jerusalem, this road leading out of Jericho would have been full of lots of travelers. It would have been a good time of year for a beggar. It would have been the busy season for Bartimaeus as these travelers are making their way to Jerusalem from all over Israel. And Bartimaeus likely sits at the city gate begging so that he can survive. And we don't really know much about Bartimaeus from this passage. We're given his father's name in the passage, which is significant because it's likely Mark's way of asking his readers to verify his account. Bartimaeus and Timaeus are real people that you can track down in Jericho. You can go and make sure that Bartimaeus has received his sight. Mark has nothing to hide as an author here. Mark names his father, but beyond that, we don't really know much. Does Bartimaeus have a family of his own, a wife and children? What was his life like before he lost his eyesight? Towards the end of the passage, he says, I want to recover it. So it leads us to believe that at some point he had it. We don't know much, but we know it's not a good situation. Remember, Bartimaeus is not a cartoon character. We've mentioned this before as we've studied Mark, but these people on the pages of Mark are real people. They walked in real time and real space in first century Israel. And so Bartimaeus' life would have been extremely difficult. There was no federal assistance in that day and age. There was no braille by which 
He could have made a living and made his way in the world. He was sitting on the side of the road. And it's important to know there's no sidewalk like we experience in our culture. He was sitting next to a road that isn't like our roads. Their roads were a thoroughfare for everything, animals and people. Dirt and dust would have been full of, let's say, animal residue. And it's worthwhile to think about these people that Jesus interacts with on the pages of Mark. In verse 47, we get a sense that Bartimaeus, he hears a commotion. His sense of hearing is likely heightened since he can't see. A large crowd is making their way past the city gate, and he asks what's happening and who this is passing by. And somehow he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth. And it's an important descriptor to include Jesus' hometown. Bartimaeus would have known many men named Jesus in that culture. It was a common name. But Jesus of Nazareth is utterly unique and Bartimaeus knows it. He's heard of this man before. He's heard of his greatness, which is obvious by the way he addresses this Jesus. He yells something that no other person in the gospel of Mark ever recognizes about Jesus. He calls out with a title used nowhere else in Mark's gospel. Jesus, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is using a messianic title here. That's important to understand. Remember the Old Testament promise that the Messiah, the Savior, would be one that comes from David's line, the great king of Israel the one who would take up David's throne and establish it and sit on it for all time. This was a royal title. This title, son of David, is simply a Jewish way of saying Messiah or Savior, the one that they long expected to come and rescue them. Our passage, it doesn't explain how Bartimaeus knows this about Jesus, but he does. In fact, he knows more about Jesus is. He sees Jesus more clearly than even his disciples who've been following him for years. And not only does he know Jesus is the Messiah, you get a sense that he deeply believes it. So Bartimaeus, he cries out to Jesus and he's rebuked by the crowd. He's rebuked like the children were at the beginning of chapter 10. The crowd likely thought that Jesus didn't have time for a man like this. Bartimaeus was just a loud nuisance in their eyes. Jesus didn't need to be bothered by a blind beggar. Sometimes the followers of Christ can be the greatest obstacle to others following him, as we see on the pages of the Gospels. But Bartimaeus knew that his need was deep. He knew that now was his chance. When else would Jesus be walking this way? And so he screams out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And I love how Frederick Bruner, a commentator on this passage, put it when he says, you have to waylay Jesus while you can. He may never come this way again. It's a good reminder for us, I think, that if you feel your need, it's time to call out now. Today is the day when Jesus can be found and it may be your only chance. So Bartimaeus yells, son of David. And something happens that you don't see anywhere else in the gospels. Jesus freezes. He stops in his tracks. 
This title and this screaming man demands his attention. Jesus is never put out by what annoys his followers. And so he calls the blind man over. Jesus doesn't silence this man or tell him to keep quiet. It's as if Jesus is now finally prepared as he makes his way into Jerusalem for his identity to be be fully known and celebrated. It's no longer a secret. Let it out. And all of a sudden, it's a funny picture. The same people that were rebuking Bartimaeus are now helping him up. Their tune completely changes. Get up, he's calling you, go on. Faith gets Christ's attention. And in verse 50, we see a tiny detail, tiny detail that Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. It's kind of a weird detail. What does it mean? Well, he would have been using his outer cloak to catch alms. He would have been using that cloak to catch coins. So this cloak would have represented his life. It would have represented what he could do for himself in many ways. And when he heard Jesus was walking by, and when Jesus calls him to himself, he leaves his cloak and he goes to Jesus. We've seen this before. Now, we don't want to allegorize this text, but I think knowing how important Bartimaeus's cloak is, is worthwhile stopping and asking ourselves, what are our coins and cloaks? What represents what you can do for yourself in your life? How do we try to manage our lives without Jesus? Maybe it's self-help books or control through eating and exercise. Or it could be the desire to make so much money that you'll never have to worry or rely on anyone ever again. Or it could be crafting a picture-perfect family that finally, hopefully, meets your heart's deep needs. I don't know what it is for you. And this passage is at least tangentially inviting us to leave those things. To leave our dependence on control, on money, on health, on family, and to come to Jesus. Is Jesus the one that you're going to for healing? He wants to give you something better, something more satisfying, something that will last forever into eternity. Don't suppress the urge to come to Jesus. We need to get in front of Jesus as much as possible. And you might ask, well, how do we do that now? Since Jesus isn't physically here, how do we get in front of Jesus? How do you put yourself in the way of Christ? Where does Jesus pass by now, so to speak? Well, he does it now through his word, the Bible. We can place ourselves in front of Jesus through prayer, through talking to him. We can experience Jesus passing by, and hopefully we do on a weekly basis as we worship with his people on Sunday mornings. He is passing by this morning. And we need to place ourselves in places where Jesus often passes by and call out for his mercy like this blind beggar. Jesus calls this man over and he asks him an interesting question. What do you want me to do for you? And it's the same exact question you might notice that Jesus asked James and John a few verses earlier. And when he asks his disciples, they ask for power and glory because they still don't see in many ways. And it's a strange question for Jesus to ask Bartimaeus if you think about it, because it would likely seem pretty obvious what this blind man wants. It would have been clear that he couldn't see. 
But nonetheless, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder how you'd answer that question this morning if Jesus asked it of you. It's not an easy or as easy an answer as you might first assume. Because if Jesus opens this man's eyes, he is going to see, but he's going to see everything. He's going to see both beauty and misery, glory and garbage. If Jesus opens this man's eyes, he'll have to learn a completely new way of life. He'll no longer be able to lean on his disability. He'll have to move forward in health and figure out what that means with all the difficulties involved. Sometimes it's just easier to be sick. Sometimes it's easier not to see. But Jesus gives Bartimaeus an opportunity to ask for his sight. And he does in verse 51, he wants a new life. And he says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus heals Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus placed his trust in the fact that Jesus could heal him. And then Bartimaeus begins to follow Jesus on the way, it says, which is a verb used often in the gospels as a technical term for discipleship. He left his cloak and he begins following Jesus. Jesus. And this is a small picture of what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants to give us sight so that we might see ourselves, so that we might see him, so that we might see our neighbors. And when Jesus gives us sight and continues to strengthen our sight, he intends to do it so that we can see more of his glory He wants to give us sight so that we can see more of our sin, so that we can see more of our neighbor's need. And as we come to see these things better, it forces us to rely more and more on Jesus. Our strengthening sight makes Jesus more beautiful. It drives us to him. Think about it. This is what we need to ask Jesus for, to give us better sight, to help us see God's glory better, to see our sin more deeply. This is what growth in the Christian life looks like in many ways. When you see these truths more clearly, God's glory, and our sin. The problem is with you and I, we don't often want to see. We tend to think seeing our sin more fully is calls for panic. It's calls to rally uh, or to circle the wagons. It's calls for protection. You and I, we work really hard to keep our sin secret, to downplay our struggles, to make ourselves look better. But we've got to fight against those tendencies. A better view of your sin, more sorrow over your failures, a clearer view of how you struggle. Those are things that could be the beginning of God working powerfully in your life. And as we continue to see our sin more fully, growth also looks like seeing God's glory more fully as well. Growth will be seeing what he requires of us. It'll be seeing God in his holiness and his sovereignty and his majesty. Growth will be growing in a sense that God is completely other than us. He's transcendent and he requires complete holiness from us. And as you see these two things more clearly, your sin and God's glory, the gap between those two things will grow. You'll become more glorious and you'll get a deeper view of your sin, and our desire and desperate need for Jesus to fill that gap will grow too. Because the gap has to be filled. 
The question is, how are you going to feel it? After all, if your sin is small in your view, if your view of God's glory is small, it naturally follows that Jesus is going to be small and will never feel the need to desperately call out to him. A growing view of your sin isn't something to hide from. A better view of God's glory is something to pursue. A better view of both is what following Jesus looks like. But a growing view of your sin and God's glory and the gap between the two would devastate you if you don't see the cross that fills that gap. And as the gap between your sin and God's holiness grows in your view, the cross hopefully will grow bigger and bigger as well. And that's what following Christ looks like. That's a good description of discipleship. As you follow Jesus, things are meant to get bigger, not smaller. As God's glory grows bigger in our sight, as we're allowed to see more of our sin, we also get to see more of Jesus's grace and mercy filling that gap for us. Jesus and his cross grow bigger and bigger, and that's the whole point of receiving spiritual sight. Jesus longs to give us the sight, so much so that even under the dark shadow of the cross, with all that was likely going through Christ's mind as he walked out of Jericho, into Jerusalem to live the final week of his life, he stops and he heals this man. And remember, after healing this man, Jesus was arrested on the following Thursday, likely. He was taken into custody and he was held for a while. And the Gospel of Luke records a poignant thing, records that the Roman soldiers, they took Jesus and they held him and they blindfolded him. And they struck him. They pop him. Well, I can't see. They say, prophesy, who hit you? In a few days after Jesus heals Bartimaeus, the son of David, the creator incarnate, physically can't see. Why is he in that position? Well, it's a pattern we see over and over again. Jesus absorbs and becomes what we deserve so he can win for us what we don't. The reason he's tied up and unable to see is because he's on a trajectory that will end with him finally taking the punishment for our blind actions. Blindness is not an abstraction. It's a reality in our lives. We're walking in blindness when we say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want or need other people. That's blindness. And everything that deserves from a holy God falls on his son so that we might be healed of that blindness. Why did Jesus raise people from the dead? Why did he give people hearing? Why did he heal blindness? Well, it's a picture of what Jesus wants to do with us. And it's a picture of the power that he has. He will give us new life. He will give us ears. He will give us sight. We simply have to call out and ask because he's very generous. And he responds to the slightest hint of faith. So let's call out and ask him, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come to pursue us, that you have come to love us, that you have come to show us your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the way that you are giving us sight. 
And we pray that you would continue to grow our knowledge of who you are, to grow our sight of who we are, to grow our sight of the beauty of Jesus as he fills the gap between those two realities. We pray that as we come and feast with him this morning at this table, that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.